0: Hi guys, welcome to episode three of the podcast. Today we're interviewing glenn Azar and his daughter Alyssa. Uh, super fucking exciting! Alyssa, the only the youngest Australian to summit Everest twice. Uh, glenn Azar, seventy eight trips through Kakoda, fighter, fifteen years, ex service dude. Really excited. Come check it out. Let's do it. Yeah. Are we wrong Yeah. yeah. Let's do it. Okay, so episode two uh, on the podcast. Super excited today. We've got uh, Glenn Azar and his daughter Alyssa. How's he going?
1: Good mate. So? Yeah, good. Yeah, nice sounds like you guys have been fucking busy over the last couple of weeks <laughs> so, yeah, so I actually just got home from Kokoda yesterday as you boys know as a recording this and I was straight at work this morning actually I was up about 2.30 um, and my <laughs> team came in and said like you literally haven't stopped since you got home but you spent eight days in the jungle where you can't do anything you've got no contact so you, you've got to hit the ground running yeah, we love it she's been up since 2.30 this morning yeah that's yeah, pretty email from asking. I remember we got a podcast this Saturday and like, nah. <laughs> I'll tell you can I tell can I tell a funny story <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll tell a funny story. So I ring Alyssa and I said to her, So listen, um, I got a story to tell you. These guys have asked us to do a podcast because I hadn't run it by her. Yeah. And, and before I've even finished the story, she said it's today, isn't it? And I said, Let Doesn't me let me tell
2: all the
1: time. <laughs> I said, Let me tell the story first. I said, Yeah, it's today. So here we are. Good. We got well, in. I moved to lunch date moved everything around. So we're all good. Yeah.
0: We're good, we got it. And so taking people through Kokoda, that's sort of your passion going into um corporate business leadership, and and that's your model. But where did it come from, uh, sort of your service in the Army?
1: Yeah, so for me, I was, uh, so I did 17 years in the military. I started out in eight, nine. So I unit enlisted to eight, nine, because I wanted to stay in Queensland. And as a young bloke joining the Army, um, like I think a lot of young blokes, you just want to be a gunfighter, and I didn't know anything else. I just assumed that's what everyone did in the army. Um, you don't realise there's all the support networks. Um, injured myself really early, broke my leg in two places doing a bayonet assault course as a teenager, and got moved over to medical corps, which I didn't want. Um, so I did admin, and then I uh, I got an op- option to do admin or to become a medic. I was never going to do admin. Um, to this day, I employ people to do that. Um, Long story short, specialised in aviation medicine, eventually did a nursing degree sponsored by the Army um, and then fell into trekking Kokoda, actually with a guy called Al Forsyth, who's the ex-RSM of the regiment back in the day. And uh, they were looking – Kokoda was really raw back then and they were taking Westpac executives away. Not many people were doing it. So we're talking sort of 18 years ago. And he put a shout out to the Army, any aviation qualified medics to make it look safer.
0: Safe. <laughs>
1: so I've whacked my hand up and just happened to be first in best and started doing two or three a year. What the Army was really good at for us as medics uh, and nurses is it allows – we can't sit around when we're not in war zones. You can't sit around for years not keeping your skills up. We have to have real-time skills. So you used to go and work at the AMBOs, hospitals. So I just said, well, this is a chance to go and up, you know, keep my medical skills up. Like, to be honest, on Kokoda, there's no medical work. You do a blister. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they used to let me go, and that's how it started. And that's the first time I thought about – this is actually – I never thought about getting out of the army and I thought this is something I could do when I eventually get out. But I never really thought about that, to be honest, at that point in time. Because that
0: space – 18 years ago, there would have been no – the resilience model, the the corporate
1: – Nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was really bad at that stuff, to be honest, because as you boys know, when we were young blokes in the army, it was kind of tough love and just get over it. So all of a sudden I'm dealing with civilians who are emotional and out of their comfort zone and don't know don't know how to just lay out a tent or real basic stuff and it was really frustrating and, and then I had to learn that you're not working with soldiers, you're working with civilians and there's a different way of treating them and working with them and, um, and I, I've just finished my 76th Kokoda track crossing and I have to say like, I'm really good at it now. I thought I was really good at it when I'd done 10 or 20 But you realise, like everything in life, I was just okay at it back then. Now I'm really good at it and we're we're doing corporate groups. We're doing big stuff from footy clubs, uh, AFL teams. We just took the Terry White Chemmark group away, their CEO and a heap of their pharmacists. And the work just keeps coming in almost to the point where we can't handle it, obviously. And with Alyssa having climbed Everest twice amongst everything else she's done, this is what we do. We're adventurers. Mm -hmm. And so people just Google us and they know what we do. So a lot of work comes in through that now.
0: Because, so Kokoda 18 years ago raw, it's not too commercialised now, it's still tough. I've never done it. Lockie, you think you've think you done it? Yeah. Yep. Lockie's done it.
1: Well, I think it's still tougher than most people expect. I think the downside to it now is people know someone who did it who they think wasn't that fit or, and then they base their training or lack of training off that and they still get caught out. And they go in undercooked. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You see that all the time. and. Um, and, and nearly every trip that happens to someone but for the most part um, these days there's enough information out there for people to train so most people go you know joe hockey did it so it can't be that hard or <laughs> so, you, know, yeah. you know but the truth is it can be and it depends on the weather conditions it's still the jungles of png yes it's commercialized when i started there were four companies doing it now there's about 50 on you know and people pop up all the time and there are like everything there are layers there are levels to every game there are some absolute absolute crap out there but there's some really good Operators, too, so yeah, and
0: it's because it'd vary, wouldn't it? Like, you get Sherpas, or you're like, you're going to do it by yourself and you're going to hump the whole track.
1: Yeah, look, I don't know too many people that and I'm talking from the general populace of Australia that can do it without the backup of porters, to be honest. Um, You know, like, yeah, we could, I think we could all tap into that side of us as veterans still for the most part. Uh, And I'm closer to 50 now than 40, but I'm still physically capable of carrying all my own gear. Most people couldn't if they had to carry their own tent, carry seven days worth of food. You know, they they just don't have that capacity to be truthful. Um, But you can also hire a personal porter to carry gear. I've no ego around that. I think it, it, for me, it helps employ the locals. Mm-hmm. We've got a really good operator on the ground that we help set up and it's allowed him to feed his family. He lives out in the village on the track and yet he runs all this stuff for us, you know.
0: Because they do the same thing with Kilimanjaro, don't they? The local porters' employment of, the, of those people that sustains the whole community.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All of those. Everywhere we go, we build relationships with the local community and look after them. Because there are plenty of Westerners that go into these countries and treat the locals like crap, um, which I think you will have a long, hard look at yourself if that's how you operate. But We've got good relationships from Nepal, Africa, you know, everywhere we go. Yeah,
3: is there any veterans that go over there and they do carry all their own stuff?
1: Not in the veterans groups that I've done, uh, as in, and, and you know, I've taken everyone fit and healthy guys that are still in good nick, and I've taken people that have got a lot of issues and struggle. Um, so mostly they're getting people to do it for them. We've done the hard yards. I don't know that you need to do it that tough anymore. Yeah, I, I
3: mean, I know mean you're saying not like the ego thing. I've, I've never done it, and I've always thought about when well, I do go there, I want to do it like the original way, just for at least the first time.
1: Yeah.
3: But I don't know, maybe that is an ego thing.
1: Maybe, maybe not. Like you're young, strong, healthy, um, but there's there's two sides to it. So. As proud as we are of the Australian history of the digger, and, and and for people who don't know, there were 4,000 Australians committed to that battle over a six-month period, and there were 24,500 Japanese. So the odds are, are phenomenal. Yeah. Um, but as equally proud of, uh, that we are of that, so are the locals of the Fuzzy Buzzy history. So I kind of feel like we're paying some homage to them, letting them do what they do. And a lot of Aussie blokes in particular, like the porters will put a hand out. oh, I'll, I'll do it myself, mate. And, and I say, let them help you because that's a part of their culture, a part of their history, and they're incredibly proud of it.
0: Yeah, because they were the ones who were taking the wounded out, wasn't it? Yeah, like so that, the side of
1: us. that story that's probably not told is, yeah, there's 25,000 Japanese and 4,000 Australians, but we had 15,000 Fuzzy Wuzzy Angels working with us. So our boys could fight while the Fuzzy Wuzzies are carrying wounded in and out um, food and ammunition in and out. The Japanese had to do all that themselves. So those numbers even out a bit when you put it into that context.
3: And the other, the other like you said, there's heaps of these businesses popping up and running are they veterans that that have got the story to tell as well or are they just business people looking to cut in on
1: Just business people, So, and I'll say that for the most part. There's probably that I can think of at the top of my head four or five veterans who are good operators, who respect the story. Um, You know, an example I would use without using names, um, I ran to one of the bigger companies on the track uh, and whenever they're taking anyone special, you know, that they think is special, like celebrity or whatever, they'll email everyone to let them know. It's an ego bragging thing, I don't really get into it. We're pretty small by comparison. But I'd just come back I was doing a back-to-back Kokoda and I'd just taken Dan Kieran VC across the track um, as part of an ADA group and this guy came the other way owned this company the biggest company he said oh we just had Dermot Brereton over here like the 1980s football player and I said all oh, right <laughs> you know, yeah. I'll have to it up and see who he is yeah but I just said to him oh you know, so it's cool and I said we just had Dan Kieran over here and he said to me who's that
0: yeah.
3: <gasps> and, and,
1: I, and, I, and I just wanted to strangle him because I think you're selling, you're selling you're making your whole living and this guy just does a couple of million dollars a year, so a lot bigger than we are, uh, on Kokoda selling our military history, and you don't even understand our current military history. Yeah. That just blows my mind. Yeah. So, yeah, that I, does get to you a bit.
3: I, I don't know. If I, if I went, I'd want to go with someone who could teach me. Like, even, we've been talking for five minutes, and I've already learned my like, three things. Like, you want to go there, not just to – you can go for a bushwalk anyway. Yeah. Like, obviously, it's not as hard, but you want to go there and learn the culture from someone who's connected to
1: it. I say to everyone, you can go and do a hard walk. Anywhere in the world, particularly even in Australia, without spending six grand, which is yeah. about what it costs for Kokoda by the time you add everything, flights and all that sort of stuff. Companies obviously operate at different financial levels, but it, pretty much that's still going to cost you the same, depending on what supply you can do it a lot cheaper in Australia and push yourself. If you're going to go over there and just do a hard walk and not learn the military history, I think you've blown your money. Yeah, waste mm. because
0: it's a it's almost a spiritual like Australia like you, everyone wants to do Kokoda. like it's almost. It's part of our history and everyone, they draw on that, don't
1: they? Yeah. Well, here's the thing for me. In this day and age of social media, et cetera, everyone talks about leaving a legacy. We all want to leave some sort of legacy, whether it's on a bigger scale or whether it's to your own kids, your family, whatever. The diggers and the fuzzy wuzzies of 1942 have left a legacy that is still affecting Australians today, 77 years later, and they wouldn't even know about it. That's pretty epic. Like, you know, I bet you they weren't walking around in 42 pre-war on their farms, talking about legacy. But look what they did. So if you can respect that, yeah, it's pretty amazing.
0: Let's go. And so going from, from Kokoda, like, would you say 70? I've just done 76, 76 yeah. 76 times. And then, Elizabeth, uh, you did – you summited Everest at 19. Yes. And then when did you do the South Face?
2: Um, so actually the south face was that one and then yep. I did the north face second and that was only last year, so I was 21. And the north
0: face is you've got to get access through Tibet, don't you? Yes, yep. it's a bit
2: more of a process. Um, so on the south side, you either way you fly into Kathmandu and then the south side you do a 10-day trek and that's when any, anyone treks to base camp, that's the side that they're doing. Um, but then, yeah, with the north side you go from Kathmandu, you've got to drive over the border and then you spend about a week getting to the Tibetan mm-hmm. side. So it's a lot more remote. Um, and they don't give out as many permits so it's not easily accessible um, but that's part of the fun of climbing on that side as well. So
0: it's not as congested on the...
2: Yeah, no, it's much better on the north side into bed um, just because they do restrict the number of permits um, and they're a bit particular about who they let go so um, the south side doesn't really have any regulations around that but the north side does.
0: So why the fuck at 19 years old do you want to walk, <laughs> do you want to walk up the highest mountain in the world?
2: Well, I guess really off the back of what my dad's done is how I got into it. Um, So really, I kind of became obsessed with Kokoda myself when I was about five or six. Um, I don't know why, I just had a fascination with it. I'd heard a lot of these stories, uh, but also, I guess, met a lot of people that had done it and they all talked about it being the most life-changing experience. So for me, it was always something that I wanted to do. I was probably, yeah, five or six when I started harassing him to take me. Um, and, it's
1: a fair description.
2: Yeah, like <laughs> harassment. Um, you know, I'd say, oh, can I go to Kokoda? And nope, okay, and I'd come back next week and we'd have that conversation again. And it's went on for a couple of years and most of my weekends were spent bushwalking with the groups that he was training um, to go. And I just loved it. And so I wanted to actually go and have the experience. So when I was seven, he actually came back from Kokoda and It was like, all right, if you wanna go, I'll give you the chance, but you're gonna do a year long training plan and you can't miss a session. And if I think you're not working hard enough, you won't go. And uh, I think he thought that there's no way
0: <laughs> you're going to do a... So, a not, so not only Everest at 19, we're talking Kokoda at 7.
2: Well, I did it at 8. eight. So that was my <laughs> intro <laughs> into adventure pretty much. Um, so I convinced him to take me and did that year of training. And then it was actually in 2005 that we went and crossed the track together. Um, and then it kind of became a thing. Every few years, we'd try and set a track somewhere. Um, and because of the adventure business, we were able to do that. So a couple of years after Kokoda, it was Everest Base Camp. And then a couple of years after that, it was the Aussie 10 peaks, the 10 highest peaks in Australia, all in Kosciuszko area. Um, and then actually two years after that was my biggest challenge at the time Mount Kilimanjaro so that was the highest altitude I'd been to then and that was really the start point of getting ready for Everest when I summoned Kilimanjaro and came back I knew I wanted to get into mountain climbing and specifically wanted to climb Everest but that could have been someday I didn't know if that was going to be a 10-year process or, or what that was going to look like I just knew that's the eventual goal um, and so when I got home, pretty much started working toward it. Um, it always been in the back of my mind, uh, but yeah, I now decided to actually go and do it. And so set about a few year process of training for it. So I went and did a climbing course in New Zealand because I'd done a lot of trekking, but not climbing. So I had to learn ice climbing, sailing, rescuing people out of crevasses, all that sort of stuff.
1: Right up to this point, as Alyssa's talking, I should point she's 15 to this oh, point. Yeah. <laughs> so she's done Kokoda as an 8-year-old, Everest Base oh, Camp as yeah. a 10-year-old, Aussie 10 pieces as a 12-year-old, Kilimanjaro at 14, climbing course at 15. So she's mm-hmm. packed a lot into this. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, got back from Kilimanjaro and, I, like I said, I had a fascination with Everest specifically and that's what I was working toward. And uh, because of my age and some of the media interest around that, it then attracted sponsors, which meant, okay, maybe I can go sooner than I thought. Um, So I had my first opportunity to go to Everest at 17. Um, So at that point, I probably put in about three years of training, tried to consistently where I could go on a climb at least once a year. And then I would do different Mm -hmm. training camps and stuff like that to try and make sure I was ready for it.
0: So did you do like the peaks? and now I've never climbed up a mountain higher than 400 feet It I think. So, <laughs> uh, but because so there's high peaks, they they're recommended around the world. You, seven
1: summits. Seven summits. Yeah. Some yeah so
2: some of those were used as my training ground. Um, so a little bit in New Zealand just to get the technical skill, but then I had to actually experience altitude because obviously being fitter helps, but you just don't know how your body is going to react. Um, some people are really fit and just don't acclimatize that well. Um, so one of my training climbs was on one of the seven summits, the one in South America, um, so that's Mount Akankagua. It's about 7,000 meters, just under. And it, it kind of breaks a lot of climbers mentally. The weather's pretty volatile, and it's just, it's actually really good to test yourself on how you live on an expedition and all of that. So I spent three weeks over there. And that one was actually kind of a test because I'd done a few years of training and I was going with the team I would potentially be climbing on Everest with only a couple months later. So that was my final training climb. And uh, they were basically all three of our guides had summited Everest, and they were, it was like a selection. If you can perform here, we'll let you come come with us on the uh, on the climb on Everest. So. Uh, went really well and then yeah two months later I was over in Kathmandu getting ready to climb Everest
1: (laughs) and I think it would be fair to say that there was more pressure put on her because of her age whereas if I went over as a 47 year old I wouldn't have had to have proved myself as much because people couldn't comprehend that a teenager wanted to do this stuff a lot of people used to think it was about me and yet I've never climbed any of these things so the other thing to point out is at 15 Alyssa started travelling on her own so she went to New Zealand on her own to do the climbing course she went to Nepal and climbed uh, the eighth highest mountain in the world. She went to South America and climbed. She was doing all this on her own. Uh, And the reason being, we just didn't have the budget. Like, you know, I was literally just out of the army. We just didn't have the money for this sort of stuff. So we wrote out a perfect plan of what a climb to Everest would look like, and we knew nothing about this when we started. We just had to research it. And then you just chop holes in your perfect plan when your budget doesn't quite fit what it needs to be. So we did the best we could with what we had. But she... She'd have to jump through a lot of hoops and yet it turns out as we know now she was a lot stronger than a lot of the adults that, that she was climbing with anyway. Because
0: what does it cost to get up it's Like if you wouldn't self fund it and you don't get sponsorship and you're like
2: Well, it's a massive range, but it depends who you climb with. So minimum you're looking at thirty thousand US dollars up to a hundred just yeah. depending on the company you're climbing.
1: So if we went and climbed, like us three blokes sitting here, we'd be paying 100 because we don't have the skills, maybe as low as 70 um, Alyssa can now climb with Sherpa-owned and lead companies for, for 29 I think it was, because she's got proven skills that they don't have to mollycoddle her. They don't have to teach her anything. She can just go out and climb. So when we first started, of course, she wasn't at that level. We had to get her to a certain level first. Um, but we've had some good sponsors along the way. We've probably sponsored 30% of your clients, the rest of it we've had to come up with, um, which is we've done. She does a lot of public speaking. She does. Um, we had a gym in Toowoomba that we sold, um, which was a good time anyway to get out of Toowoomba and move to Brizzy. To be fair, and so you know things just fall into place where they need to. But these days, if she went back and climbed, yeah, it'd be twenty nine thousand. It's her and one Sherpa because you've got to be tied to someone on Everest normally, and away they go.
0: Yeah, because I've got a uh, we've got a friend, uh, Monica George She was the first female infantry officer in the Australian Army, right? And uh, she's an she's so into this. She's it's what she wants to summon Everest. She's got a yeah. five seven year plan to get to go there, mm. and all she talks about is you. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's um, because I was a complete completely naive to the whole thing. Like it's commercialized. Oh, but yeah. People go up there all the time, but like there's the death. They're talking about the Death Zone and uh, Rainbow Valley and this place, like if you if you get into trouble like people die all the time
2: yeah it's quite interesting too because it is commercialized but there's still that environment there's aspects that you can't control so you know you're in base camp and particularly on the south side in nepal it is a bit of a village there's all these people from all around the world but You do have this sense once you're up there that really no one can help you. To a certain degree, you've got to be able to help yourself, particularly once you do get to the higher altitudes, pretty much past Camp 2. They can't fly a helicopter or anything like that. So you've got to be able to get back to Camp 2. So that's at about six and a half thousand metres. And so, pretty much, yeah, the death zone is considered 8,000 meters and above. And you definitely have a feeling of you've got to be able to handle everything that happens up there and get yourself back down. So, it's quite nerve wracking as you're leaving for summit day, for sure.
0: Yeah, because all they have got, uh, like, uh, I mean, I've only, read, I've only read this, the Green Boots Cave and all these places that you see, constant reminder. What's going through your head when you're walking up Everest and it's right like snow and
2: Yeah, it's kind of, it's a mix. Sometimes you're like aware of obviously where you are and how crazy this feels. And then a lot of the time you're just literally focused on the next step. Um, Particularly as you get to those higher altitudes and you're struggling to breathe, like you feel like you're working at max capacity and you're lucky to be able to take 10 steps. That's just how slow you're going. And you've got to be able to hold that pace for like the summer day was about 18 hours or something. It was a very long day. But yeah, so it's kind of, it jumps between the two. You have these like crazy moments where you go, look at where I am. And then I've got to focus on what I need to do.
3: Nine more steps to go. (laughs) Do you go into it thinking like, like all young people do, I'm invincible. Or I've heard the bad stories, it's not going to happen to me. Or do you go that's yeah, real me. I just accept it it's something that I've got to
2: Definitely the second one and I think a lot of my training was actually really helpful with that. Um, I remember when I first told my dad at you know 15 that I wanted to climb Everest. He said all right but Pretty much, let's look at everything that could go wrong instead of dreaming about summits and how great that's going to be and all the good stuff. You need to be aware of the reality of it, and really, that was a consistent message throughout the years. I actually um, went and did a training camp at the Mill over in Perth with some of those guys, and there was just this constant message of basically preparing for the worst-case scenario. So if you can handle that, then everything else is you know, a bonus and a plus, obviously, if you get to the summit. But, um, and it really came in handy because I didn't successfully summit until my third attempt and the first two were quite catastrophic. So having that background was really important going into it. But yeah, definitely it was, be aware of what could happen and then, you know, build off of that.
1: And we talked death a lot leading up to it, not in a a sort of negative sense, but in a, this is reality. And I surrounded her with people That weren't me because, like, I I think I'm pretty tough and I think I've got a good mindset, but I'm still her dad. And so I didn't want my love of her to become her weakness. So I surrounded, sent her to the mill, um, obviously, or she looked them up herself. But, you know, um, Keith Fennell's next uh, regiment bloke, I surrounded her with people that understood death and they weren't going to mollycoddle her. And the first thing, like all of those people said to her, is that we're going to see where you're at and be really honest about it. Because I didn't want her going in there with this inflated sort of idea that everything's going to be okay. And I think that's what came across. Because yeah, And as a parent, when she was 19, she'd done all of her rotations over six weeks, because it takes two months to climb Everest, so six weeks of rotations. And then when it was time to push for the summit, that's a five-day push. And the last message she sent me leaving base camp was that, whatever happens over the next five days, I know it's going to be the hardest thing I've ever done, but whatever happens, I want you to know that this is what I wanted to be doing, which is a pretty harrowing message to receive from your daughter. But you'll kind of get that she's willing to push that line as far as that line needs to be pushed. And as a parent, you hope that you know when to pull back. I'm not convinced she had that in her. <laughs> um but everything went well. She made the summit. She came back down, and I was actually on Kokoda when she summited. So because um, that's what I was doing. Yeah, that's what we do. That's, that's our job. Yeah. So, mm.
3: It seems to be like it, when you're in the army, like you get numb to death because you're around either people that have died or, or stories of it or whatever. And it, it was I, I found it like forever after I got out, couldn't find people in society that really understood that. Cause we're so separated in the western societies death is just hidden yeah when someone dies you, you you don't go and look at bodies so much anymore and no one talks about it and it's really taboo and then you get into a job like the army where it's you've got to get it's, used to it's it reality it, it's reality mm. and i couldn't really find that until i started watching movies like these docos on people climbing it was either everest or, or any other big mountains and they're walking up and then like snow's melting whatever then bodies just coming they're like they, they're, they're cool with it because They're
2: ready. Yeah, I found that particularly when coming back and doing interviews and things like that, it's very hard to convey how you can be okay with that. Um, And I guess it is just part of what you have to accept. And, you know, in climbing, it's just, like you said, reality. Mm -hmm. It's just that we face it more than other people might. So, yeah, yeah, you do become a a little bit numb to it, I guess, in a sense, because you know it's part of it
3: as well. Yeah, yeah, it just becomes an accepted part
0: of life, which I think is – because it's a positive thing. Yeah, well, I mean, they've got stories where their partners – there's like an old man and his wife on Everest and she got she got altitude sickness and she was cooked she was done she was in a death zone and they're like "You have they were coming back and trying to drag him away from her like you've got to go she, you can't help her yeah mm. and he's like no nah, I'm staying here and you're like righto like that's it you can't help her anymore
2: yeah that's like, making right.
0: that decision mm. at that point or like if it's a bad day people try and push on when they're like we're going to keep pushing know. Like, you can't suffer that. Yeah, Yeah.
2: absolutely. Yeah, you're definitely in charge of your own personal decisions up there. No matter what team you're with, what you paid, how much support you've got, you've really got to be accountable for your own choices, whether you choose to push on or not and that sort of thing, yeah.
1: And I don't know where you came up with this, but Alyssa talks about this thing called Uh, risk acceptance level. Everyone's got their own risk acceptance level which basically you have to make the decision of how far you're willing to push yourself and you're responsible ultimately for that. And as a teenager I think people used to interview her and think she didn't understand death because how can you? You're a kid. But this whole process of Everest was when you were saying if you were going to do it, it's going to be five to seven years. Yeah, that's the process. Your friend, if she's got a five to seven-year plan, she's a very good chance of succeeding and enjoying the process as opposed to some of the people out there that think that I'm just going to go and have a crack at this thing. Yeah, they might. But, you know, there's also people that have had multiple attempts and failed. So Um, statistically, uh, 97% of Australians have attempted Everest have failed, but that's through history. Obviously, that stats a lot higher now. More of them are succeeding, but statistically, not many people are going to undertake something where your chance of failing is ninety seven percent. Like we just most, and, and your life's on the line. It's not like failing and oh well, that was kind of shit. It's yeah, failing it's and you could just, die. yeah, yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah, what's
2: it like out there? When's the last? Sorry, when were you up there last? Time. I was up there last year. Um, so April May is the climbing season because at the end of May there's about a week where the jet stream winds lift off the summit, and that's the best weather to go for. Um, so there might be a couple of windows throughout the season, but really you spend all of April and then most of May getting ready for that one week, um, so that your body's then acclimatized to go for that weather window.
3: Is it like what people are talking about that it's like a rubbish dump at every?
2: I I don't think so, so. not what I experienced. I mean, there's a few oxygen bottles here and there, but they've done a really good job, at least in the years that I've been there and cleaning it up. It was actually a lot cleaner than I had heard. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure how it was sort of in the decade prior. The thing with Everest is it's still a massive learning curve. So the commercialization hasn't been going on for that long. So as issues come up, they're sort of new um, and we're still figuring out how to deal with all of that. So there's certainly some crowding issues, um, but there's a lot of things that go into that as well like teams not working together and just having to be conscious of the fact that there's more people now doing it um, and how they sort of regulate that. It's kind of a process that's still unfolding.
1: And as a rule, people outside of the climbing and adventure community don't understand Everest. So then the media just jumps on stuff that they know nothing about um, and then people have an opinion on something they know nothing about um, and it becomes popular opinion. Uh, fortunately, Alyssa often gets to refute that. People talk to her. She was on the Today Show recently. They were really good with her and you know they were just wrong about stuff and she just told them that and they were okay with it. You know? <laughs> 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 but, but, and there's a the reality that people don't understand. Like bodies being left up there like green boots. Um, they say that things up above 8,000 metres, weigh about four times what they weigh at sea level. So the ability to move me, a 100-kilo bloke off a mountain, is almost impossible. And so that's the reason they're left there a lot of the time. The rubbish, um, we've got good mates over there who are who are actual Sherpas and who own Sherpa-owned companies, and they're slowly working through that process. So we paid money, plus you have to bring a certain amount of stuff down yourselves. There's a whole process. Like anything, like when I talked about Kokoda before and the way people treat the locals, or it's the same in every country you can go in and be responsible for yourself in an environment or there are people that are just there to kind of rape and pillage an environment and you, that's just, that's humans. Um, we know which side we sit on and what we're very focused on but not everyone's the same, of course. Yeah, it
3: sounds like the same. It is everything you do, like we get to a point, it's sort of slinky or, or you get to a point where it's like someone wants to do it, let's do it we'll trash the place doing it, we'll pay it some money. <laughs> but then time goes down and people are like, nah, we've got to get a bit eco-friendly and then it catches up and bring it back
1: to normal. Yeah, and that's just society. Like society's yeah. on a massive learning curve about how to handle everything that we're doing to the world. So, you know, the biggest plague I- in the world's history is humans. Yeah. Um, and, and we haven't quite sorted that out yet and we're not going to solve it in know, our no, time. No, but no.
3: <laughs> just, just kick us off <laughs> so, uh, Did you ever get to the coin where you like, I'm done, I'm going back, I've had enough.
2: I don't think I ever seriously thought I'd turn around, but probably the hardest day I had was on my first summit of Everest. It was in 2016 and it was a section we'd already done before. So you repeat some of the mountain when you do these rotations. So you'll go from base camp to camp one and come back down and go up a little bit higher and come back down to acclimatise. And so... We went from base camp direct to camp two, which is about a 12 hour day. And I'd say it was tougher mentally than physically because you're pretty gassed and then you've still got about four hours to go and it looks like it's right there. And it just never seems to get any closer. So I remember that was probably the day where I really had to dig the deepest and start to question, I don't know if I can do this. Um, and it was literally just get through the next 10 steps and the next 10 steps. And it was hours of that. So that was probably the one day where I really thought, oh, I have trouble here. But um, got up to camp two and then regrouped and then felt great for the next couple of days. So yeah.
1: yeah. And Alyssa phoned me that day from her sat phone. So I'm. Uh, just talking to her on a Bluetooth in a car, and she's on the side of Mount Everest, <laughs> and I could hear the distress in her breathing. Um, so I got it; like I knew kind of where she was at, and um, and I think what added to it was she's a teenager. So a lot of people didn't know she had the strength to do this. They say. I think average age is around 45. So you're quite mentally strong at that age, might not be as physical. Um, So a lot of people thought she was too young. Well, on that summer push they've done the whole six weeks and as they're pushing out there's a couple of big – they're they're going out in the middle of the night like 2 o'clock in the morning crossing – uh, the Kumbu Ice Fall and there's a couple of big avalanches that collapse around them they can hear them but they can't see them and there was two or three guys in their mid-30s who pulled out after six weeks of climbing on the mountain had already been there just went I'm out that's my as Alyssa would put it that's my risk acceptance level I'm done so I reckon I don't know we haven't really talked about this but as a teenager when you see grown men pulling out of something and you're a teenage girl you probably start to question yourself like am I doing the right thing I don't know if that added up to that day but then every day after that she was just strong Like whenever i'd hear from her feel great you know and when she got back i said what was the actual summit push like you know because people talk about being absolutely fatigued and i don't know if i continue on and she said i felt really strong so who knows and i
0: think that's fucking hard for people to fathom uh like walking up it's like oh yeah i can walk up a hill no worries right oh it's snowy and i got gear but i I think it would be like people to understand like you're saying like 10 steps you're like I am gassed. Like, you're at your yeah. max of your...
2: Yeah, to hold your max for that long um, was quite mentally taxing. And I think just... How
0: do you describe it? How do you, how do you actually, like, tell somebody that, that's never done it, like, what it feels like to try at that altitude to walk?
2: Yeah, well, it's funny. Like, for summit days, when you're going from Camp 4 to the summit, that's probably a distance of probably less than a kilometre. And it takes... 10 to 12 hours for most climbers. And that's like all out, can't possibly move any faster. So it's just that environment does that to you. You can't breathe properly. You know, you've got a constant headache and that's normal. So you're not eating, sleeping properly by the time you get up to those altitudes. So you've pretty much got to be able to perform when you're feeling it worst, And that's kind of normal on Everest. Um, and so yeah, particularly on summer day, but really from camp two onward, you're just trying to get through the next section and you know, it's so almost if you think too far ahead, you kind of psych yourself out. Um, so for me, I think that's part of what happened when I was heading to Camp 2 and really hit the wall. It was like, you're thinking about summer day, you're thinking about two days ahead. And when I started to bring it back to just focus on what you're doing now, it actually became a lot more manageable. So that's, I think, how I kind of got through that.
0: So is that like, is that like it's like anxiety, uh, uh, it's managing your anxiety, isn't it? Like yeah. to a degree, I yeah. suppose, like, I'm not gonna worry about that. I'm not gonna self defeat. It's, it's this step, it's this next.
2: Yeah, it was really choosing what to focus on because also we'd had a proposed summit day of, I think it was the 20th of May. And then as we, were, around that same day, we were getting into camp too. it was oh, you know, there's bad weather conditions coming in. We don't know if we're going to get a window. And again, it was like, I've got no control over that. I'm going to get as far as I possibly can, as far as the mountain will allow me to. Um, and so yeah, just really bringing your focus back to what you can control, particularly right now. And you can't control these other things. You mm-hmm. just got to let it sort of fall into place. So
1: there's a couple of things like, i can't remember the stats on the top of everest but at base camp which is 5000 meters we're breathing 11 percent oxygen whereas right now we're breathing 21 percent. so you've got half as much oxygen per breath so your resting heart rate in base camps around 90 and you're not even doing anything so your body's constantly burning so to be even higher that's where that fatigue comes from i must admit i've watched videos where they when we very first saw where they're doing this 10 pace thing and i remember thinking like, dude, just walk faster. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then I went uh, just this year to Russia with Alyssa, and I'm, and that's exactly how I was walking at 5,000 metres. So what
0: was going on in Russia? Did you say you did, you've done Kokoda three times and Russia?
1: In the last six weeks, yes. Yeah. So Russia is um, – Alyssa went over as a 20-year-old, so after her first Everest summit, she went and climbed Russia because it's one of the seven summits. And it's true to Alyssa's form, she flies into Russia on her own, doesn't know anyone, doesn't speak the language, meets some guide over there, they're going climb Elvis and she flies home <laughs> um, and I said what's it like she said I reckon you could do it so like it's achievable you can do
0: it <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. well I <laughs> <there you go laughs> well
1: uh, well, I've done Killy a heap of times. Well, I did Killy the first time, one of the first times with Alyssa, and he's bloody hard, like Killy's hard. Um, and so I thought, I don't know if I'd get much higher than that. Well, Russia's a touch lower, but it's a longer climb. It's a yeah, longer someday. Yeah. So we took a group over, the heap of people that wanted We were surprised. Like nine people said, yeah, we want to do it. So we took them all over from a 13-year-old to, I don't know, the oldest bloke would have been in his early 60s maybe. Um, so we just took them over. I wanted to have the experience. I've never been to Russia. It's actually quite amazing because I grew up, at my age, I grew up three through the Cold War so you kind of view all the old movies of you know the Russians and Rambo and all all that sort of stuff Um, they're totally different people to what I expected much more westernised than I thought although not many people speak English out where we were but lovely lovely people it was a really enjoyable experience and we'll do it again next year or I will definitely I'm not sure if Alyssa will yet she's got some stuff on but um, yeah we'll definitely go and do Russia again because it's achievable by most people and yet it's one of the seven summits so without having too many climbing skills you can do Kilimanjaro Elbrus in Russia, you know Kosciuszko in Australia. There's three of the seven summits and you haven't had to really have technical skills yet. So which is pretty cool.
0: Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> right on, yeah. I, I always make people uncomfortable though. Uh, <laughs> so, so one of the three summits Russia going in there uh, I can't believe the, the knowledge in the room from from Kokoda to Everest to uh, and then, well, I want to know the mindset you're going through. So they talk about people, um, they, they have like their internal dialogue and what their actual mm-hmm. voice is. So you're, you, for me, I did selection and finished it, and the entire time I was like, fuck this. <laughs> 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 From the first, first second yeah. that, I'm like, nah, fuck this. It just didn't end up happening. I thought I'm probably too lazy to pull off. Yeah. But you, you've inside, you're you've you doing Kokoda 70 summer times. You've done Kilimanjaro like... It, it, do you, what is your fucking internal dialogue is it is it self-destructive but you just keep going what is that mental resilience and, and that's the part that you try to impart on people so,
1: well I'll, I'll go first because I reckon we're different to be honest um, in this regard and maybe that's just age or whatever so for me Uh, my whole thing in life is building better humans. I believe in I go in and coach businesses and stuff and what I end up saying to them is if you can if your people are better then your business has to be better. So I look at them in a holistic way and I believe adventure is the best personal development in the world. So who you are at the start of an adventure, so who Alyssa was at 15 when she said I'm going to climb Everest compared to the person that stood on the top of Everest they're very different people. She had to gain a heap of skills, she had to gain a heap of um, knowledge um, mental strength, she had to do all these things to get there and I think that's the same for everyone so for some people crossing Kokoda will be the hardest thing they ever do but they'll get so much out of it uh, and I've taken Alyssa as an 8 year old obviously but outside of her 9 and 10 year olds over which is quite young right through to 79 year old woman from Melbourne was the oldest I've taken and everyone in between I've taken single and double egg amputees I've, I've seen all and I've seen 30 to 35 year old relatively fit guys and girls struggle now, now how can that possibly be it's got to be what's going on up here so everything we do we own a gym which we just opened this year in Newstead in Brisbane Um, I coach people and we do a podcast around building better humans and we run adventures and so, for me it's all about other people and and growing them as as individuals so walking Kokoda for me personally isn't a big deal and like I said, I'm, I'm closer to 50 than 40, and yet I still feel fine. So I'm, I'm not an athlete by any stretch, but I'm fit and healthy. Um, could I climb Mount Everest? To be honest, I'm, I'm not convinced I could or that I have the drive. I think you have to have that internal driver, and Lisa's always had that particularly for that mountain. Um, so my internal dialogue when I'm doing it tough, which isn't that often, to be honest, for what I do, is just putting myself in the moment um, why am I here? What am I trying to get out of it? And mostly it's about other people that I'm with. Um, would that be enough to get you to the top of Everest? No. There's got to be more and that's where I guess you can talk about that.
2: Yeah, I think it's very different. Um, I think particularly having done Kokoda so young that was a massive eye-opener in terms of my potential and what I could do. And for me, I guess I became obsessed with the idea of making that happen. Um, and for me, that was Everest. That's how I was going to um, I guess, make something of myself. So it was more about, um, I guess, my own personal development um, and using these climbs as a way to do that. So I love the climbing, but, yeah, for me, it was always kind of a bigger idea of wanting to become someone who could do that, um, and I became obsessed with that process. So, yeah, for me, it's much more internal.
1: And I would th- I would say Alyssa gets a lot of mental strength from her mum as well. So, like, whilst I do all these challenges, her mum's um, – incredibly driven and stubborn. Uh, and I don't say that in a negative, <laughs> negative way. She just is. Yeah. And I reckon Alyssa's got that in her as well because um, she's been training with people, uh, again, ex-regiment blokes. or And one one of our mates, Kev, who did some training with her once said, when I'm put, pushing her, she gives you nothing. Like her face doesn't change, you know. And he said, I actually watch her lips because when her lips are starting to go blue, I realise she's running out of oxygen, but she won't tell you. <laughs> I, I don't have that level in me. <laughs> So, yeah, I just think she's always had that internal driver. And it's interesting, like, we're not – I always grew up not really a universe sort of person. I don't. I used to think that if you think the universe is talking to you, you'd have to have an incredible arrogance as one of multi-billion you know, billion people on the planet, let alone other animals. But Alyssa once said to me, I feel like I was born into this family for a reason because it's a family that would allow me to do this and not all families would. I think a lot of parents' natural instinct is to tell kids you can be and do anything you want, but as soon as they go too far outside our our comfort zone we go oh hang on just back in here a little bit and we start to tell them but you could hurt yourself so I never ever said to her I don't think you can climb Everest I never asked her why would you want to climb Everest because that's not that's not my question to ask I never thought well have you thought about doing this instead I just said well if you're serious then let's work out how to do it because I don't know what that is I don't and once you know how then that goes to you you decide if you're willing to do the how are you willing to do all this work if you are then go and climb it that's on you but at no stage did we ever try and I didn't try and smooth the way for her I didn't try and encourage her but I didn't try and discourage her either and I think that's important for parents to understand we all think we want kids to achieve all these amazing things but most of the time we don't give them the skill set to do it because we then go well this is everything you need to do and then I'm going to try and make that happen for you it can't work and it, then it won't work
0: with kids I don't, I don't care if that's the perfect path you want me to be on not fucking doing it yeah Yeah. and they
1: don't understand failure they don't understand disappointment They don't. and we had all that we had trips that she was coming back from where people had died where she climbed a mountain called Amadablam which interestingly is a beautiful mountain that's quite technical anyone who's trekked Everest Base Camp will know it and has seen it it's really unique and the interesting side is Edmund Hillary once said no one will ever climb that now he did go and climb it years later but he thought it was too technical you were 16 Mm. when Alyssa was 16 when she climbed that and on her Wait on her summit day and it was one of her toughest summits and it's under under 7 000 meters yeah and but what happened was as she's going up there was a a ledge probably no wider than this table and a 41 year old russian climber died on his summit push so they were carrying him back down and at 16 she's seen that and as a soldier myself or by then a former soldier i used to think about never spoke to her about because i didn't want any negatives in her head but i used to think about PTSD because I obviously work in that space a bit with our veterans and I used to think, well, she's seeing death at a young age. We've got to be conscious. And so I was watching for these signs of that because I don't know about you guys, but I wasn't seeing death at 16. And that was her chosen thing, you know. I still remember the first death I saw as a medic and I think I was 20 and I I still think about that today um, and what decisions I made when that happened, whether I did the right things at the right time. I still think about that but I didn't have to think about it at 16 so we always watch that. I
0: think that fucking grows you as a human fucking being when you're 16 on the side of
1: a mountain. (laughs) Well, like any adversity, it's going to grow you or it's going to crush you Um, and I think well confident to say now it's grown her not to say you probably don't think about that stuff yeah you Um, definitely
2: do and like you said you think about what you could have done and i mean a lot of the time it's not much at altitude like this was well after the fact so i think this climber had died the day before and i actually when i summoned everest last year there was another climber who died of altitude sickness um, above the death zone so again there's really nothing you can do in those sort of situations but the one I think about a lot is in uh, 2016 an Australian woman died um, on Everest and we I didn't know her but we had about a day apart our summer days and we'd actually crossed paths. Um, and so, you know, you think about that stuff a lot. Could you have done anything? But, yeah, I think um, it affects you. You think about it but I think you can allow it to, like you said, strengthen you or, or crush you.
1: And the other side of it is would you do anything because for climbers there's pretty much, I wouldn't even say unspoken, probably a spoken rule amongst them that once we get in the death zone you look after you. I'm not going no one sort of stops their summit for someone else and people who don't climb think that's really selfish. But those are decisions that climbers are all aware of. So you know, I'm not looking at you guys to save me and give up your summit attempt. We're all here for the same reason. So it's pretty brutal. The, and I don't even like calling it a sport because I don't think it is. I think it's a lifestyle that they live. So and then again as a parent you've got to go in comfortable with that. But is it any different than a – none of my kids have been in the military as such, but for all of our parents, they saw us join, they saw us get deployed. They must have the same fears that you've taken on a, a, a role that could potentially see you killed. In fact, when you look at the military, that's kind of the goal, isn't it? You know, yeah. one side or the other. That's the end. That, that's how you win. Um, so our parents experienced it as well, I guess, at, at different ways and different levels.
3: I'm, I'm glad we got this because that's something I wanted to bring up. How okay, had to get through letting your kid oh, i got two kids now and the oldest one's only three but I'm super conscious of because I think you're uh, you're obviously an outlier but in your generation especially there's an entire generation of, of kids who haven't seen any adversity and now they've got no resilience to anything. Yeah. so I've got um, I've got these two kids now the oldest one's three and every time he's going to go and get himself hurt I force myself to let him go and watch and and Obviously, my ex-wife thinks it's super cruel and everyone the park is <laughs> super cruel. But at the same time, I take him to the park and there's other little kids there that are like they're all picking fights with each other and I want to go and throw those kids in the pool. In the <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's a big thing. I'm like yeah. like learning it now and trying to, trying to figure out how to navigate it. Because we've got to let kids almost break themselves or we'll get to the point where they learn the hard way.
1: Yeah, look, I don't know, honestly, the answer to that. And I say, as in for where this is at. Now, I could give you an answer now with my experience of life, and I've got four children, And uh, but I look at when I was a, a young parent like you, none of us have a clue. We all just doing what we think is the best. Um, so even those people who are getting it wrong, as in mollycoddling children, they don't know they're yeah. any different than we did. I think being in the military helped. Uh, make me a little bit tougher. I used to always joke that I was never gonna win Father of the Year. I was a nature over nurture guy and I think nature wins every time. But I do remember a particular incident when Lisa was maybe in grade one or two. She was at a private girls' school in Toowoomba and she came home one day and she had all the skin off her knee and I said to her, What happened? And she said, I was running on the concrete and I fell over and I said, Oh what'd you do? And she said I just got up and got over it. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's pretty much what I used to say, just get up and get over it. Like and these are with and my older two kids are both girls. So it's not that I was tougher on them um, because, you know, they're boys or uh, I don't know. Like it's easy for me now at my age to go, you, we definitely should not mollycoddle our children. But when you, you've got kids, it's harder. Mm. When they're little and they're our, our angels, it's harder to do.
3: Yeah, mine, so mine about boys, and that's the question I've already started like, discussing in my head is when they get to like 17, 18, um, would I let them join the army? And it's not would well, I let them, but would I yeah. be happy with it? And the answer has to be yes because like i just imagine if my parents said to me "That's all i want to do is join the army and if my parents sat me down and said you're not doing it i would have cut them out like yeah. that oh it would take me years to get like and back into talking to my parents again
1: it's a hard one because um I don't know. I kind of feel like we served hoping our kids don't, if that makes sense. I was the same. I was an angry young guy. I moved out of home as a 15-year-old or just before. So the army suited me. It suits angry young men back then uh, in particular um, and alpha male type personalities it suits. Um, So everything I was about back then. And and I definitely found that tribe. Like, you know, some people have terrible experiences in the army and and the army changed my life. I joined the army with a year nine education and left with a university degree. Like, there are not many places that give you that opportunity. yeah, where how you perform actually can pay you back. But I've got mates who did 10 years and say the Army didn't give me anything. Well, I kind of felt like that's got to be on them at some point. And I was no, I'm not an outlier, I can tell you right now. Alyssa is definitely, and any of the guys that have worked with her from the regiment have always said that about her. And I've got no doubt that's who she is. And that does not come from me. Um, but I was always tried to be the best I could at what I did, definitely. I was never someone – people always ask me, did you ever think about doing selection? Never thought about it never crossed my mind Uh, i used to help train blokes for it Uh, i had blokes over there saying you should come and do it i had the kids quite young just didn't interest me um being i I admire those guys and i think it's amazing what they do but there was no piece of me that felt like i wanted to put myself through that (laughs) so so who knows you know i don't know the answer but You know, I think if Alyssa wanted to join the Army now with what she's done, I think she's got too much life experience for that to be of value to her. Yeah. Whereas me at 17, I needed it um at, at by the time say she's finished climbing Everest at, and and she had thought about it 19 2021 20, you know imagine going through recruit training and they're teaching you doing lessons on how to brush your teeth and how to do your hair and how to make your bed and you think I've climbed everest twice
3: maybe she had to blow whistle
1: you know, and you just – I just think that, yeah, it's it's horses for courses. But I think about boxing because that's my other passion in life. A lot of world champion boxers say they don't want their kids to fight and that's why they did what they did. So you would kind of hope – the generations of our own family line progresses in some way, and what we've done gives them better opportunities. And that's not to say to anyone listening, don't join the army. I love my time in the army, but I also would be pretty stoked if none of my kids did that. <laughs> so, yeah, no, we you know. talk
3: about this a lot lately, and, and I'm the same. I want the kids to get that. I love my time in the army, so I'll encourage it. But I, there will be that thought that if they come to me saying, I want to join, I'll be like, What? Did I do, what did I do wrong? <laughs> angry dude or the dude that was because I had shit missing in my life I remember, and that's why I do it yeah. to fill gaps. So I'll be looking at it going, you know, fucked up something.
1: But interestingly with Alyssa, we would regularly get asked um, when she was 16, 17 18, why would you let her do it? And my belief around this, uh, we were very dominated when we were kids by uh, a very aggressive um, drinking father. Like, And he's still around, and we get on okay, but this, so there's no disrespect. That just is what it is. Um, but we'd always get asked about why we'd let her do it, and my opinion was you don't own another human being. So our the privilege we have as parents is to guide these humans to get to a certain point where we've given them enough skills to make the right decisions when faced with the time to make those decisions. And... When they fail or when they get it wrong, which they will to feel comfortable enough to fall back into us as a net. And not be judged about it. That's our role. Our role isn't to own them until as long as you live under this roof, you'll do things this way. That's that's so twenty and thirty years ago. That's not the way the world is. I don't think if you want to raise strong, intelligent humans that aren't subservient to other people. Yeah. But yes, they need resilience, and you need to. The only way you can get resilience is by building resilience through tough times. So they need to have those experiences. Definitely. So
0: yeah. So we're talking like like uh, so. There's, a, there's a, a phrase coined around a little bit post traumatic growth or, do you know, like, uh, they talk about the crayfish goes through stress beforehand and it has to shell, shed its shell and that. But they talk about, um, so maybe that this whole adventure lead, the leadership model stuff where you take people out of their comfort zone and grow them in an environment where you teach them resilience and that maybe it's coming from people so, so over-sheltered kids who grow up and they never had that so we join the army, you summed it ever, it's like at that moment that doesn't compare. Uh, but we all went through our own portion of that—that that resilience and that mental building mm-hmm. the calluses—and uh, then some people that, that join the army, they or they don't sorry join the army, they, they go in the corporate sector, they become lawyers and doctors, and yeah. they never get that that mental resilience, and now they come looking.
1: And they can be hugely successful. I just took a, a group of pharmacists away, as I mentioned earlier, and they all own their own pharmacies. And I just got an email today, and I only got home yesterday from one of them saying that. I, that's you know i really enjoyed your quiet dominance and i don't know what that means exactly but she said i feel like we are in control of every decision we make and no one tells us because we own these pharmacies and we so we're, we we want to control everything and you didn't let us i wouldn't so my rule on kakoda is i don't do are we there yet so i'll tell you what's going to happen in the next 24 hours not in the next two or three days. And I regularly get people go, well, what about tomorrow? Well, you get through today, then we'll talk about tomorrow. And no matter how much they push me, no matter how much money they've got, and all of these people could have bought and sold me 10 times. (laughs) But it's irrelevant out in the jungle because the jungle doesn't care. (laughs) And, And when we're out there, neither do I. And their only communication with the outside world is me with a sat phone. So they trust in me and my team. And it's interesting that they actually enjoy giving up that dominance for once. And once people get to a certain level of success financially and in a business like that, So these are intelligent people that have gone through really different ways of life than we've gone through and they've had good supportive families and backgrounds and schooling and education and our business and everything's good. Um, Every now and then I think it's nice for them to be able to step outside their comfort zone and experience something different because I was reading recently that the, the biggest addiction in Western society today is comfort. It's not drugs, it's not the internet, it's, not, it's comfort. We're addicted to comfort to the point that we're scared to get uncomfortable so we stop growing as humans. That can happen to successful people too. Just because they're sex, uh, successful financially doesn't mean that they're happy, um, doesn't mean that they're, they don't they have that need for challenge that we all have. So most of them will do something like a coda, It's well outside their comfort zone. And then all of a sudden they want it, They feel like adventure is what's missing in their life and they want more of it and they didn't even know that when they started. Half of the group that just came with me said they hadn't even considered it except that they, it came up as a suggestion from someone and it was raising money for Ovarian Cancer Australia, which was a charity close to their hearts for personal reasons. So they go and do something that they totally wouldn't consider normally and now all of a sudden they want to do it again and do other things and because they don't know what's missing.
3: Yeah, comfort's a slow death. And that's, I think, all I've talked about, i talked about as a client the other day, like we, humans used to be driven by survival. And then we got to the point where now we're driven by comfort and they've got to work seven days a week, 12 hours a day, so we just buy fancy cars and fancy houses and sit down all weekend watching Netflix and Uber eating, so we never have to go outside. and we're just we're not
1: living we're just slowly dying I saw a guy on Facebook recently who said to me or didn't say to me he wrote on his thing um, I've ordered Uber Eats from the uh, from a restaurant that's 400 metres down the road 15 minutes later it's still not here and I'm watching him drive up and down and all these mates are getting on and going this is bullshit and you should do this and yeah. I <laughs> and I got on and said hang on let's just clarify so it's 400 metres away yeah. and the problem is that Uber Eats isn't here quick enough Like, yeah. why didn't you walk down there and get it he said that's not the point
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> quest for
3: comfort if you can't get it get it online and complain
1: One of the benefits of taking Alyssa to Kokoda as an eight-year-old, and at the time, should we point out, she was the youngest person ever to do that, um, and it was considered quite bizarre that we would even consider it But and I remember the local newspaper in Toowoomba, the letter to the editor he wrote, do you think this guy, I was still a soldier so I didn't give a shit what he thought about me <laughs> to be honest I had no public profile, the internet didn't really exist back then for me, I wasn't trying to run, run a business so I didn't care what he but he wrote, do you think this guy is being um, an irresponsible parent taking his kid to Kokoda um, anyway, no one bothered to write in so it wasn't that exciting for people but <laughs> she saw that as an 8 year old so she seeing people live in grass huts with mud floors, kids that are happy with next to nothing, seemingly next to nothing. I would say that on a terms of materialistic things. They don't have all the stuff that we crave for, but they all have houses and food and family. What else do you need? And and we take 20 or 30 years to go through some spiritual journey before we realise that's what we need. (laughs) Normally after we've lost all that, somewhere in the process. Then I took her to, to Nepal when she was 10. I don't know if you remember this, but we're sitting in this cafe or in this restaurant and you're looking out and we're on the third floor and you can see they just build on top of themselves on Nepal in Nepal and she, you could see people and their electricity goes off at a certain time and as a 10 year old she said to me you know dad in four weeks that we've been here I haven't seen a house. No one lives in a house. And I hadn't even thought about that as an adult. And she was right. There's no houses there. People just live on top of each other and they just build another floor and build another floor. And they live in these cramped little spaces where everyone's living in one room. So she had a different appreciation for success. Success wasn't the BMWs and the Mercedes and the, what other kids or parents had. Or I don't feel like you've ever judged like that. She's never had things. Her rooms... I would go as far as to say Spartan, even today. It's got things that interest her and books and things from certain climes, but she, she's not someone that wanted a computer and, and a TV in a room. I've bought Xboxes and stuff over the years for Christmas that never got used, but, yeah, which is pretty cool, cool. you know. Um, yeah, well,
2: I think the first three countries we went to were all third world countries. So coming from, you know, I went to private schools and lived in nice suburbs and that, to that was a massive eye-opener for what I guess here you actually have.
1: Yeah. And going to New Guinea as an eight-year-old, little blonde, she probably looked like a six-year-old because she's always quite small. Um, And I never thought about the fact that she had never been a minority somewhere before. As a race, and all of a sudden, and people were coming out, touching her, touching her hair, <laughs> touching her face, and I never thought about how that could freak an eight-year-old out. We've got videos on the old VHS, <laughs> and the, all the local women would come out and surround her and all touch her, and um, and I think all, now all those experiences are actually pretty cool because most of us in Australia haven't experienced being a minority in a country, yes. let alone yeah, at, let alone at eight years old.
3: I did it once. I got in career for three nights on the way to Europe. Me and mate went out, and we we're a foot and a half tall. There. <laughs> I think
0: was there, and everybody—we celebrities. They yeah. loved it. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. What are you doing? So uh, you got a Project One
1: Hundred and Eighty T-shirt. Yeah, so Project One Hundred and Eighty is actually what our gym name is. Um, and I went—I I thought long and hard about building a gym over the last couple of years since I got out of the gyms. And then I thought, I don't want to be. Uh, So my old gym was called Fighting Fit because, you know, and that was like 15, 16 years ago now. So I started that while I was in the Army. Um, And Fighting Fit is what it was. We ran boot camps as in not the boot camps that PTs run today but like what PT we would do in the Army. Because most people, civilians, think that PTs, military PTs, just people yelling at you all the time to drop and give me 20. And so all these back then, all these boot camp style gyms, that's what they were doing. They were trying to pretend to be Army, which is really what they were seeing in America. Military, and it's not really what it's about. And and as I was a subunit PDI for a lot of years, and I remember. Realising that 50% of the people at PT, particularly in a Basby, when I got posted to Basby, don't want to be there. <laughs> so they're there purely because they've got no other excuse not to be there and they can't get away. All the senior NCOs have found another reason to be somewhere um, <laughs> as a rule. Yeah. Yeah, unless I wrote minor team games, then all the senior NCOs would come down <laughs> and I'd throw a circuit together. But um, So I wanted to change. I wanted Project 180, to, instead of just being a gym name, I wanted it to be about what we are. And our goal is so our tagline is Building Better Humans which is written at the front of our gym and it's fitness mindset and adventure and it's a holistic view of saying um, everyone's got a project to work on so you can be really fit and you could have a really good business but your family life might be poor your personal relationships might be poor and and we've all either know people that have been there or we've been there Um, I know guys that are doctors um, that have got you know they're doing triathlons they're up at 4 o'clock in the morning riding but they don't see their family 4 days a week I know guys that have got great businesses great family lives and they're 40 kilos overweight so my idea is that everyone has got a project to work on when they walk through the door whatever it is and 180 is just taking you from where you are to where you want to be whether it's from the you know base camp to the top of Everest whether it's from one end of the Kokoda track to the other whether it's the weight you're at now to 20 kilos lighter whether it's feeling depressed and anxiety to actually believing that there's good things in life that's all project 180 was built on that's I wrote a an executive summary of what I wanted it to be about before I wrote a business plan because that to me had to make right, sense so they sort of come to you with
0: their goals and they're like hey this is what I want to do and you take them through
1: we get people who come and see us Um, just because they want to be in the environment. So my big thing in life I've learned from successful people and successful people, call that whatever you want, whether it's business success or people in good relationships with their families or whatever, is the environment you surround yourself with is all important. And I think as veterans, one of the biggest problems I've seen, for example, with PTSD is we retract into ourselves and we think we're the only person that's gone through it and all of a sudden there is no environment around us and we get trapped into this identity of being this is who I am and when you strip PTSD away from veterans and, and I've been there when you strip that away they don't know who they are and that scares the hell out of them so I'll just hold some people hold on to their PTSD as hard as they can yeah
0: because it's, it's treatable yeah. it's pr- proven to and then they but if you can hold on to it but if they? you can put
1: yeah. them in the right environment around, around energetic and motivated people everything changes so the people that do the best in life are surrounded by really good people with Alyssa wanting to Climb Everest. I wanted to surround her with really good people, people with strong mindsets, who didn't look at her and say, "I don't know if you can do it or you can't." We didn't want their opinion on that. We just wanted them to be there to support whatever it was that she was willing to put herself through to get there. It's the same in any business. I've had three or four businesses now that have all been successful. Like, you're yeah, not to the point of being millionaires, which doesn't interest me to be truthful, but happy, successful, growing businesses. Now I go into Project One Hundred and Eighty, and I'm surrounded by people that I want to be around. As in the staff that work for us, the clients that come in there. Oh, I'm far too advanced in life now to be surrounded by dickheads. I don't sell myself for 45 bucks a week. I've got better things to do with my life. Um, and as a result, the environment around me is good. And then the environment around them is good. And we keep growing as a result of that. And I think if more people... Cared more about the environment around them, then they would do better. If 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 there's five of us sitting at this table and we're all negative, if the sixth person who joins us becomes negative as bring well. It down. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. the only way it can be. But so let's
3: say the sum of your five closest friends. Yeah.
1: Friend. Well, that's a Jim Rohn quote, Sorry, and man. it's yeah, and it's famous. So. <laughs> yeah, <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's true. Like that's an old Jim Rohn quote, but it's true. Like all those old cliches are cliches because they're true. Mm. Um, and if more people bought into that, I, now I get people that go, all this positive thinking stuff is all. Bullshit. Cool. If that's what you think, then that's exactly the result you're gonna get as a result. If I get to the end of my life and all this positive thinking was wrong, I still reckon I've had a pretty good run as a result of it. Who knows? you be fucking visual. How are we doing with the uh cameras again?
0: Yeah, sweet. No, we're still going. Good to yeah, go. Yeah. I was worried we were gonna that's right, mate. Joe Rogan does thirteen hundreds and he still drops <laughs> out. So we should be we're all right. That's not bad at all. Cause you were you did so project money your businesses you You've summoned Everest twice, the youngest Australian to do
1: it. And, and the youngest woman to do it from both sides in the world.
0: That would have there. and that's because that's a super interesting one because it's she's you going know, through China and Chinese government to get the, the yeah, permits, hey? and they have like five I'm talking shit, they have like 500 people do it a year, not, or not,
1: not even from that sort actually, yeah, maybe
2: 200 with yeah, you
1: know, with the Nepalese permit, um, when she did the south side, we got that like six weeks before she went with the Chinese one, she had to fly over there and sit in Kathmandu, and two days before her trip was due to start, she finally, or maybe 24 hours, yeah. she got the permit. So she's sitting in Kathmandu, and we don't even know if they're going to let her in the country. <laughs> yeah. And that's the way it's they do it. Wait. They make you get there first and then they decide if you're going to have a permit or not. So you're just kind of sitting there waiting around and going, well, maybe I'm climbing Everest or maybe I'm not. I don't know. It's a bizarre yeah. mindset, isn't it? Yeah, it mm. is. And
2: they're pretty intense. You drive over the border and the, there were that many bag checks where you've got to go through everything and, you know, certain things you can and can't bring. And we were only allowed a satellite phone for communication. Uh, so bas- very little communication over there anyway.
0: So what do you do? So uh, would you prefer if you had to pick and say, hey, look, north or south side...
2: I think because of that, I'd actually say north because they restrict the permits. I think it just makes the experience of being on an expedition better. Um, It is tough, though. There's it's definitely longer the north side, Um, but I I like them for different reasons. Um, Australian climbers in particular have quite a connection to the north side. The Australian Ascent of Everest, the first ever ascent was done by that route. Um, So, yeah, it's got a bit of a history there, but I do like the south side, um, some of the more technical sections, but just because a lot of the stuff that goes on there, I'd, I'd go north. Uh, as soon as you asked I that think? question,
1: I was I was thinking you were going to go north for a different reason, and that being that um, Alyssa will often go on these climbs, particularly when she's younger, and I wouldn't hear from her for days, sometimes four or five days, <laughs> oh, and I'd be wondering what's going on. And then she'd finally message and go, oh, "Yeah, everything's going good." Okay, wouldn't be would, how hard is it to get in touch, mate? Let us know what's going on. Like I'd be, oh well, yeah, there was nothing happening. And so on the south side, they have Wi-Fi set up during the climbing season, so we get regular contact. On the north side, the only way to contact her is sat phone, and I reckon she likes that. <laughs> because she hasn't got me harassing her hey has it going yeah yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah
2: it's not working
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah hey, you're breaking up
0: <laughs> I don't know where we get I, I I literally can't believe uh that at 19 years old you're like we're going up Everest and I'm thinking of quitting going doing a PT session so <laughs> it's, well,
1: I, fun. it's funny you should say because I even after Alyssa got back Um, because, you know, I've been involved in this process with her for a long time. I'm confident there were times where we were probably the only two people in the world who believed that she could do it. Um, A lot of people doubted it, which is fine. That didn't worry us because, you know, we don't care about other people's opinions to that extent. Like, yeah, they can affect you, but it didn't really worry us. But I remember looking at her, even today, I sometimes would look at her and think, she stood on the top of Mount Everest twice and it's hard to comprehend sometimes because at the end of the day, she's one of my kids and we've known her since forever and it just thinks, I just think it's bizarre myself. There's no, there's
0: no fucking soundtrack, is there, in life? Like, mm-hmm. you see, like, <laughs> you know, there's motivated. no big motivating
1: moment. you just like, oh, it's my There's dog. no Rocky montage. Yeah, it's right.
0: <laughs> so what do you do next? You just, you've summoned at 19 years old, summoned Everest twice, both both sides. What the fuck do you
2: do now? What, yeah, what's the look, next I'm catchy? still very much working that out. Um, <laughs> it's still, there's moments where, like, it, it's kind of your normal. It becomes your reality. But there's still moments where you reflect on it and go, yeah, I can't believe that happened. And even only last year, like, it feels like that was years ago now. Um, I reckon that's the
1: biggest challenge, isn't it? Because I think so, yeah, with Everest, I think so. she had so much clarity for so many years. She just knew. And I don't know, like, she just has been on that journey for so long and was so, she just would not waver on it. But the rest of your life is a trickier one because yeah. my, we all have that. I don't know what I want to do at twenty-two. I was in the army. I never really thought past that. But um, I never—it's not like I ever looked at the army and thought this is my career because we all know that it's not forever. Like you know, it's not a, a not an old man's game or an old old person's game. But I reckon that's been harder for you than.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think, um, God, what was it, sort of five years leading up to the first summit of just knowing that that's what I wanted to do. Um, so, yeah, I'm not 100% what well my next thing is going to be. I'm sure I'll continue to climb at some point. It's going
0: to be um, funny starting watch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we get to watch
1: it on Yeah. I'll tell <laughs> you two really funny stories. When The week we got home, we went and did media all week. So we flew into Toowoomba, then we flew down to Sydney and did all this media. And there, there was a book written through Penguin called The Girl who climbed Everest I think that was a pretty imaginative title um, and then we finally got home so we were home a week before we had a night in our own place and the Friday night I can't remember you said something to me on the Friday about sort of being bored literally just climbed Everest and then on the, sat- <laughs> <laughs> and on the Saturday she said to me we need to plan another adventure and I said you've literally just climbed Mount Everest like the first time but then I also remember Nine months before the second Everest, when just out of the blue, she said to me, what would you say if I said I want to climb an Everest again, but from the north side? And I'd say, well, if you're serious, I would say, let's do it. And nine months later, that's exactly what she did. <laughs> so.
0: <laughs> so what do you do? You've gone up. Do you go down? Is there, are We we gone in the, what's that uh, trench?
1: You know, it's like <laughs> you've, ne- you've never dived, oh, have you? No, mm. I've
2: never dived ever. Um, but, you know, there's a couple of mountaineering challenges. One is the seven summits, um, but probably the hardest one in the world is the 8,000ers. So Everest is one of those, um, but there's 14... Peaks all above 8,000 metres. So they're all an Everest size expedition. So each takes two months. It's not unusual to have to have a couple of attempts at them. So they, you know, it takes climbers 10, 20 years to pull that off. So each one of those is a massive challenge. So yeah, a few of them is kind busy. of interesting. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I remember when as a teenager, for some reason, a lot of the media used to always say, you've got the rest of your life to do this. So why do it now? Um, which I refute because most of us don't have the rest of our lives to do that. We think we do. And then all of a sudden you have you get married and you have kids and you have mortgages and you have responsibilities mm-hmm. and as we all know you just can't go and up and one spend that sort of money two spend that sort of time three risk your life you just don't have that option to. you. But Alyssa's always been pretty level headed and, and I remember I think it was Layla McKinnon or someone on one of those shows said you got the rest of your life to do this and she's as a teenager said yeah I've got the rest of my life to do everything else as well. That's <laughs> like, oh. and yeah. That kind of, <laughs> that kind, yeah. ended, that kind of ended that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: kind of just done things in my own order Um, you know i knew it was quite a unique opportunity to be that young to be able to go to everest for a lot of climbers like you said there's too many commitments that they've got to be able to up and leave for two months potentially you know risk your life and all that sort of thing and i whilst it was a steep learning curve at that age i knew that you know, it was a luxury to be able to just focus on that and really give 100% to that. Um, so, yeah, that's what I decided to do.
0: You need to fucking understand Yeah. I think, a, yeah. yeah.
1: But I think the biggest, um, or the proudest thing, and the biggest achievement in some ways is that Alyssa's really well known in the Sherpa community. And I think that's important to us to be well liked and respected in the communities that we respect mm-hmm. and so often like you know what someone in the media or what so other people have an opinion on doesn't matter so much because they don't do we want to be them probably not but whenever she's in Nepal Sherpas want to get selfies with her <laughs> she's up at 7,000 meters and Sherpas go oh listen," and they want to get photos yeah. and you think
2: and they're like, hey. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so that's pretty cool and the people yeah. that you respect respect you back um, and again for most people I would say look at whose opinion you're worrying about do you? respect them? Do you care um, about what they think about you? And if you don't, then why are you even worried about it? Look at the people that you know and love and respect and take your sort of measurement from that. It's far more important. And truthfully, the people that you respect and who respect you, probably aren't giving you negative feedback anyway. They might give you constructive feedback and ways to improve, but they're not just giving you negative feedback. I remember when Alyssa summoned Everest, the first people to break the news were Channel Nine on their Facebook page. I've got a snapshot of this just because it humours me more than anything else, but there's all these comments and most of them are, hey, that's amazing, congratulations. (laughs) Then, or probably 50-50 between that and like, who cares? Which is fine, (laughs) people can have that opinion. But there was one guy that wrote, we don't know this guy because on Facebook you can click on them and see who they are. It's not like they're really hidden unless it's a fake profile. But this one guy wrote, "Oh damn, I was hoping she would fail," and then some like wrote underneath it, "Yeah, me too." And I'm thinking, what's going wrong with your life? <laughs> <laughs> what a 19-year-old's doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: so that's narcissism, isn't it? Like, yeah. It's like someone's doing something really cool and it's affecting me. Like, You don't even fucking know that well, person. Yeah. And well, I'm them.
1: on the couch. There's a break on my show on Netflix. I've decided to flick on face. What the hell is this kid doing? <laughs> <laughs> and so the way around that is to be negative or try and bring them down. And, and Luckily for me, we have res- raised resilient children who really don't care about that sort of stuff. Um, but, yeah, interesting. I just look at them and they're not the who's who of society. They're the who's that of society, mm. to be honest they you know, some bloke that's probably sitting in his mum's basement in his undies, you know, watching something he shouldn't be watching and it somehow affects his life. Like, yeah. like who cares?
0: It's that tall poppy stuff, hey? like So we've got a mate, uh, Philip Thompson, is the federal member for Herbert. Yeah. And he was the underdog and he, they lifted him up, lifted him up. As soon and people as he got were
1: feeding his um, signs and everything. I watch that. that yeah. yeah,
0: and then as soon as he got in, they were like,
1: yeah. they just
0: started tall poppy syndrome. So yeah. and we love an underdog and then as soon as they're up,
1: well the interesting thing around western society and particularly Australian society is we whinge about the current generation and that they're not as strong and as resilient as as we were and, res- and generations before I talk about Kokoda a lot and people always go the people of today couldn't do that well having been a soldier and you guys get this I refute that I think that we don't know until we're challenged and I think we would step up when that opportunity comes I think Australian soldiers have proved that time and time again through the generations are we different people of course we are but I still think we step up when the time comes so we bag out this current generation they're lazy they're on social media all the time all these things but as soon as one of them does something kind of really cool it's like oh hang on a minute like you know just come back a little bit um so we we whinge about them but then when they do cool shit we think it's you know, it doesn't make sense. I've met a lot of really cool teenagers when Alyssa was a teenager because she would go and talk at a lot of events. Kids that were really musical or science based or artistic who were freaking epic. Those kids don't make it into the media because it's not cool. It doesn't sell. The negative stuff sells a bit better. That's why we love following what footy players are doing. Or you know, there's bad stuff. It makes more sense to us because it sells more. And at the end of the day, we're a consumer-driven society. The good stories aren't that exciting. So, if any good story makes it on the news, it's some stupid cat or dog YouTube video on the last few seconds of the news just to make everyone laugh after giving you forty-five minutes of absolute crap. Yeah. <laughs> you know that's that's society, and if you if, and if you take society for what it is, you're not as affected by it.
3: And that's, yeah, and the, I think that, that's all marketing at the moment too, because it's to, to sell people stuff. You need to get an emotional response, and it's yeah. way easier to get people depressed and sad than it is to make them happy. Yeah. So like, let's sell by bringing everyone down. And you've got people that are sitting there watching, watching people do awesome things and then looking at their own shitty life going, there's another thing that I can't do come down and get on that
1: well the best thing for us in this process is when people write negative comments which hasn't happened that often but when they do all they do is fuel me to have things to talk about either on my podcast or on keynotes or they give me material if anything (laughs) because I remember once uh, before your second summit she was training or maybe it was the first summit yeah training around Mount Cutha in Brisbane here and the ABC did a story on it and put it on the and some guy wrote oh that kid's kidding you she thinks she can train for Everest on Mount Kutha. And then two months later she are standing on the top of Mount Everest. So, my And so then I use that to tell the story to people that, well, you don't have to climb Mount Everest to climb Mount Everest, firstly. Well, that doesn't make sense. There's got to be a step before that. The other step is, um, which is a really obvious link, is you've got to do what you can with what you've got where you are. So if you have to train on Mount Kutha to climb Mount Everest and you're mentally strong enough to push yourself to the where you have to be, then it is good enough. We're in a country that hasn't no altitude now highest points 2228 meters altitude people can get altitude effects at 1800 meters but it's officially 2500 so we don't officially have anywhere of altitude so are you suggesting she has to go overseas to train to climb this well if you don't can't afford that then you train in mount Cutha as she did and you climb mount everest as she did so <laughs> you know again people are entitled to their own opinions but they're not entitled to their own facts yeah. and, and then unfortunately they get those two confused so I can get pretty aggressive around that stuff, but I just tend not to bother writing about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, hey, well, uh, I think that's probably about close to – we're about an hour and a half now, and, and uh, we're gonna. this will be about another four or five podcast. We can get you guys back, <laughs> each one of you. I mean, that was fucking – that was amazing that, to listen to both those stories. Mm. And um, we'll grab your notes and your web links, but where can the guys find you? Guys, mm. so uh, you do your public speaking stuff. Whereabouts can they find more?
2: Yeah, probably the best place is I've got a Facebook page and any updates go there. Um, so it's just Alyssa Razor on Facebook.
1: What's your website? Um,
2: it's just Yeah, I'm all back in the podcast yeah. notes. So yeah. That's not a problem. And, and
1: then The rest of our stuff really is Adventure Professionals, uh, which is just adventureprofessionals.com.au. Um, Project 180 is just 180, as in 180.net.au. But otherwise, we're pretty heavy on social media. Well, I am more than Lisa. She's got way more followers than me, but <laughs> but I post a lot more often because I'm more into it, um, into the social media stuff because I view social media as a as a positive as opposed to a negative, and I think that's, a, again, another choice that we get to make. So when people write on Facebook, oh, I'm getting off Facebook because all the negative shit, well, you're following the wrong people. It's really it's, that and simple. And your choice by what you like and yeah, what you're not. That's right. the, yeah, that's right. The algorithm yeah, yeah. will feed you what you want it to feed you. So if I'm reading your status and it's too many negatives in a row and there's not that much going on... I'll I'll just, I'll just sleep you for 30 days. If you pop back up with a negative after 30 days, we're done. Like, <laughs> yeah. you probably won't even notice. So, yeah, I think we get a choice. So, I like social media. I think it has a positive if we use it that way. Um, we're just so easy. People just Google us. We've got pretty unique names, so we're pretty easy to find.
0: Yeah, definitely not Ben Lazar from Airy <laughs> 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 No, thanks very much. Oh, yeah. No worries. All right. Awesome. Thank thanks, you. For us. thank you.